Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Matthew chapter 9. This morning we, uh, there's four students from our school at least, it might be from our church here, at least that are on a, uh, a junior high youth retreat. So we want to pray for them as that time is closing out together. They're going to start heading home. And then we want to pray for our time together in the Word as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, these four kids. If there's any others here, Lord, we pray for each one of them that you'd bless them. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for all those leaders that have volunteered their time and their weekend to be away with the kids. And Lord, just to pour into their lives and minister to them. And Father, we want to pray, Lord, you'd bless them. <clears throat> Lord, each of them, no doubt, have heard a lot of things over the years of their life. Lord, they've heard about Jesus. They maybe have begun a relationship with the Lord in one way or another. But, Lord, we know, Lord, that there, if you will, are no grandkids in the kingdom. Lord, that every one of us needs to come to a place of making that decision to walk with you and to submit our lives to you. And we want to pray for our kids. They're never too early to begin. And so bless them, speak to their hearts, draw them to yourself, give them the courage to walk in faith. And, Lord, for us, as we dig now into your word, but I think we need that same courage as well, Lord, to believe these things and, and step out in faith and build a life upon them. And so, Father, we ask that you administer to our hearts, you draw us into your presence. Lord, you'd bless our time together. Lord, that your word would come alive in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in, as I said, Matthew chapter 9, uh, and we, the last time we were together, we actually, we looked at one verse in Matthew chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 9. And so today we're going to actually re-look at that verse again because it, chapter 9, verse 9 moves right into the next account that is uh, given to us in verses 10 to 13. We took a little bit less time or uh, less verses than we normally would last time because we wanted to spend some time celebrating communion. And the last time we were together, we looked at the calling of Matthew the tax collector. And so let me read through that verse again in the next four verses or so that follow. This is starting in Matthew 9, 9. It says, Now Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose, and he followed Jesus. And as Jesus reclined the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but it is those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the last time we were together, we learned that Matthew, it's Matthew that Jesus comes across and invites to come follow him, the same Matthew that wrote this book. So again, you can imagine, this is a pretty significant story in his life, account in his life, because it's his story of when he came to know the Lord. It's his story of coming to faith. And we see in verse 9 there that Jesus encounters this guy while he, while he is seated at the tax booth. And it's not the Matthew passage, but it's the parallel passage in Luke that tells us the reason why he is sitting at the tax booth is because he was the tax collector. So he's not just taking a load off for a little bit and happens to be seated there in the tax booth. This is his place of business. 
This is where he works from, and as Luke reveals to us, as we know, he is a tax collector. And we saw last week, we, we know some things about tax collectors in that day. People in that day don't like tax collectors, didn't like tax collectors. Tax collectors were notoriously known to be cheats. According to the thinking of the day, tax collectors, they were written off of by God. The, the idea the religious leader said is, you know what, you're gone too far. God's not interested in you. Don't even bother coming to services anymore because you're one of those people. You're a tax collector. And so in their mind, hey, if God has written me off, well, then I'll write God off as well. And tax collectors went down a path that got themselves involved in a lot of things, sin, if you will. And so frequently in the Bible, almost always in the Bible, when it says tax collectors, it follows it up with and sinners. They just went together, tax collectors and sinners. And so as I pointed out last week, nobody anticipated that Jesus, as he's walking down that street, would stop at the tax collector's booth and say to one of those sinners, I'm inviting you to come and to follow me. And yet that's exactly what Jesus decides to do. And in that instant, Matthew is faced with a life-altering decision. Because Matthew is being invited to be a disciple of Jesus, to come to school, if you will, with Jesus. And so you can imagine a fisherman, they could go with Jesus, go to school with Jesus, uh, an intensive discipleship program, and when that program comes to an end in three months or so, they could go back and be a fisherman. A school teacher, for instance. They could go for three months, their summer months or whatever, go to an intensive discipleship program, and then come back in September and go back to school and be a school teacher for Jesus. You could be a good Christian fisherman or a good Christian school teacher, but you could not be and you cannot be, at least in this day, a good Christian tax collector. It's like if somebody is a, I'm a hit man for Jesus or a prostitute for Jesus, or a bookie for Jesus, or whatever. There are just certain jobs that don't jive with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in that day, you could not be a tax collector and be a follower of Christ. And that's why it's so significant for us when we looked over at Luke chapter 5, where it says that Matthew, in, the, in that passage there he's called Levi, that Matthew left everything and rose and followed Jesus. So Matthew's decision there to get up and leave everything meant that he was leaving his means of livelihood. He was leaving his job. I have enough money in the bank for a couple of weeks. How much money do you have in the bank? Could you survive if you stopped getting a paycheck for a month? If you Dave Ramsey people, three months, six months, or whatever, I probably got about three days or whatever, that I'm good, because I have kids, you know what I mean? I, I have plans to save money, but I have children, or whatever. So Matthew leaves his means of livelihood. Matthew's decision to follow Jesus means he's leaving his acquaintances. The only people that would hang out with him were other tax collectors, and he's leaving that lifestyle. Matthew's decision to follow the Lord means he's breaking off his friendship. So friendship. So when it says Matthew leaves everything, Everything means everything, more so than it would mean in your life and in my life. And the reason why I bring it up is because it's the, the event that follows immediately after is tied right into Matthew's calling. 
And so immediately following this call, Matthew's call, we are introduced to an event which takes place with a group of tax collectors. Look at verse 10. It says, As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, to recline at table means to share a meal with other people. And in first century Israel, you didn't sit at a table but you rather laid down on the ground. So what you would do is you would lay on the ground. Your, your head would be, you, you'd kind of, I should lay down for you, but I'm not going to here. You, you would lean on one of your arms, like lay on one of your arms. Your feet would extend away from the table. Your head would be right there in front of the table. And then you'd reach and you'd take the food and, that you were going to have. And everybody would sort of lay in a circle, and that's how they would enjoy their meal. They didn't actually have tables that you sit at. And so, you know, the, last, the picture of the Last Supper? I don't know where they got that camera or whatever to take that picture. But Michelangelo's painting of the Last Supper, you've you, you got to strike that from your mind when you think about them eating at table. They're laying down there at table. When we go to Israel, you know, you go to these nice restaurants, you sit at nice tables, you have great meals and all that. So for fun, one day we go to this place called Abraham's Tent. And Abraham's Tent is just this great like Disneyland type of ride kind of thing, you know, where you go there, you ride a camel. Nobody rides camels there, really. You ride a camel, you put on a little robe and all that, and then you go and you recline at table and you have a meal. And if you don't want to recline at the table, you go, all right, party pooper. You know, you go and you sit at a table and you have it like you would in our day. But it's a lot of fun and it's enjoyable to do that. But the sort of eating arrangement of the, la the Last Supper that we have it depicted for, that sort of thing wouldn't happen for another couple hundred years. And so they're laying there on the ground and they're eating this meal here, and that's why it says he's reclining at the table. Now, it, the Matthew passage doesn't tell us this, but we learn again from the Luke passage. The Luke passage is the more detailed account of this event, and it's in the Luke passage that we learn that the house that they have gathered at is actually Matthew's house. And so we could put the pieces of the puzzle together. Here is Matthew being called to become a follower of the Lord. And somewhere as they begin to walk together, he says, let's everybody come back to my house and we'll have lunch or we'll have dinner. And so all of these people gather there. Jesus doesn't just stop at some random tax collector's house. He goes to Matthew's house in particular. Matthew, now the ex-tax collector, invites all of his friends, the current tax collectors, so that they can come and they can meet Jesus also. And earlier when I said that for Matthew to become a follower of Jesus, it would mean that he would have to leave his job, he would have to leave his associates, he would, he would have to leave his friends. The reason why is because that lifestyle doesn't jive up with what it means to be a Christian and to walk with Christ. And so from the moment he made the decision to follow Christ, there were going to have to be some things in his life that would have to change. So the lying would have to go. The cheating would have to go. The philandering, the carousing, the partying. Those things were going to have to go if he was going to be a disciple of the Lord. And somehow, right from the start, Matthew knew that. It just was in his heart. Either Jesus told him that or 
The Holy Spirit kind of laid it on his heart, but one way or another, he knew that that lifestyle was going to have to be left behind and he was going to have to move forward with where the Lord was leading him and taking him. And so Matthew makes a decision then, if you will, to throw kind of a going away party for himself and for his friends. But this was going to be a different kind of party altogether than himself and his friends normally uh, celebrated when they came together. Now, there are some, even today, churches do this. I think it's a neat idea. They have today, in our day, what are called Matthew parties, and they name it after this particular event. And what a Matthew party is, it's a get-together, it's a party, and it's designed with the purpose to getting to know those that are around you, maybe in your neighborhood, whatever it may be, and in love, leading them to Jesus. So a Matthew party is specifically designed to introduce unbelievers to Christ. And so Matthew has, if you will, a Matthew party so that all of his old friends, all of his friends could come and meet the Jesus that he has just met. Now, I've come to find an interesting thing occurs in the life of the Christian. When we begin walking with Jesus, as we begin growing in our walk with the Lord, we start making decisions about places that we should go. You know, we we just start thinking, you know what, if I go to that nightclub, if I go to that bar, that's not going to be good for me. And so we make decisions. I'm out. I'm not going this evening. We start making decisions about the things that we should do. And oftentimes we begin making decisions about the people that we should do those things with. Now, that sounds terrible. But the reality is this. If as a new believer, I go and hang out with that guy, it's not very long before I start doing the things I used to do with that particular guy. You understand what I'm saying? And so it sounds terrible. It even sounds judgmental. But the reality is this. When I make those decisions, I'm not judging you. I'm judging myself. Because what I'm saying to myself is I know if I go with you to that place, I'm going to get back into those things. And I don't want to get back into those things. So I'm not judging you in that process. I'm judging myself. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in making the decision to be careful with who you hang out with and who you interact with. Unfortunately, I think this is an unfortunate byproduct of that, is soon, within a year or so of being a Christian, the average Christian has almost no meaningful interactions with unbelievers in the world around them any longer. And soon what begins to happen is all of your significant interactions are with fellow believers. And so you find yourself sort of in this catch-22 because you want to reach your friends. You want to reach those guys and gals that you kind of have grew up with. But you also want to kind of keep yourself from getting involved in some things you don't want to be involved with any longer. And I think the average is two or three years and the average Christian doesn't really have any unbelieving friends anymore. And so it becomes very difficult to reach those unbelieving friends. So I think it's good to be purposeful then in our interactions with those that do not yet know the Lord. When I began to walk with the Lord, I came to Christ when I was a senior in high school and I was just sort of the same average kid that I was when I came to Christ. And before I came to Christ, I just kind of went about my high school, the rest of my high school year. But when I entered into college is when I really began to walk with the Lord. So it was during my freshman year in college that I began to get serious about what it would mean to be a follower of Christ. 
And an interesting thing is I had two friends that went to the same college that I went to. We went to high school together. We went to grammar school together. We had known each other for 15, 16 years of our lives, whatever it may be. And now we were all going off to the exact same college. And so it was very natural then that we would just continue to keep hanging out with one another because we hung out with each other for the last 15 years of our lives. And now we're sharing life together in college, so we'll hang out with one another again. But the interesting thing is now, I was now a believer that was trying to walk with the Lord and follow the Lord. And they were not. And pretty soon it became very evident that we were going to have to have that conversation. You know that conversation, it's not you, it's me. You know, that we were going to have to break up, if you will, as friends. Because I needed some time in my walk with Christ to get established in my walk with him. If you will, to wean myself from sort of that party lifestyle and all that other stuff that we sort of had gotten into during our high school years and things like that. Now, my desire still continued to be to see my friends come to know the Lord. And so for a little while, a couple, six months or whatever, I kept inviting my friends to youth group or to Bible study and these things. And one of them was gracious to kind of go. I think he came as my friend, but he wasn't really interested in it. And, and soon, he, you know, no, I'm not available this week. And, you know, wouldn't pick up my calls as much anymore and things like that. And they continued to invite me to parties and respectfully I said no thanks and I'm not interested and I kept inviting the Bible study and they said they weren't interested and little by little we drifted apart from one another now an interesting thing and that was good for me to be kind honest with you it was it was good it's where I needed to be a couple years later however the Lord began to burden my heart you need to call those guys again you need to reach out to them again you need to invite them to something find something that you can do together I understand you don't want to go to their party and they don't really want to come to your Bible study, but there's probably something you can do in this world together where both of you were kind of content to be there. And so we went to a Trenton Thunder baseball game and hung out there together and talked and how you doing and connected again and just tried to maintain relationship and, and things like that. I bring all of this up, my story time up. We're not here for story time. But I bring this all up because I think as believers... We, it's important for us to know that we are forced to make some decisions about where we go and who we go with. I think it's very important to have relationships with the unbelieving world. I think as Christians that we should be very purposeful about looking for ways to connect and to interact with those that are not yet believers. But at the same time, I think we need to be very careful and mindful and honestly apprise each situation and kind of ask this question, who is influencing whom in this relationship? And so in my decision to hang out with the not yet believer, the unbeliever, am I being kind of brought back down into that place where I used to live and those things that I used to do? Well, then they're in, who's influencing whom? They're influencing me. And in those situations, it would be wise to sort of pull out of that, pull back from that, to protect yourself from getting back involved in some things that you don't want to be involved with. Matthew, in our story, he loves his friends, and he loves the Lord. And his desire is to bring those two together. I want, to, I want you to meet somebody. And so he throws this party. And in his mind, the best way that he can get these two together into the same room is to, uh, to throw a feast for them. And so he invites these tax collectors and these sinners, he throws this party for them so that they too 
can come and, ta- and meet Jesus. And, and now take notice of this. It says in verse 10, it says that many tax collectors and sinners came to this party. And I think that's significant. These tax collectors and sinners, just like Matthew, they would have known who Jesus was. Right? Jesus was around town or whatever. They would have known who he was. They probably, likely, kind of kept their distance from him. You know, he's not going to be interested in me. I'm not going down there. He's going to say something. He's going to make me feel kind of convicted and guilty. And so they probably kept their distance from him. But here now, Matthew comes to them and says, hey, you know what? Remember that guy, Jesus? He's inviting us to a meal, or I'm having a meal at my house, and you're invited to it. And he said, you're more than welcome to come. He wants you there. And so these guys come. And again, I think it's significant that it says many. And the reason why I would say this to you, let me ask this question in a different form. Do people want to spend time with you? Do people want to spend time with you, particularly unbelievers? Do unbelievers want to spend time with you, or do they find you annoying? I think, there's an amen, I think some Christians, I think some Christians are annoying. I used to be annoying. Emphasis on used to be. All right, amen? I'm not annoying anymore. But I think some Christians can be a bit annoying to unbelievers. And the reason why they can be annoying to unbelievers is because they are continually calling unbelievers out on the unbelieving actions. Are you the type of person that takes great delight in pointing out to unbelievers how they're acting like an unbeliever. Quick to point out, you know, Jesus wouldn't wear that. Well, it's a blouse. I hope he wouldn't, you know, or whatever, (laughs) you know. Jesus wouldn't say things like that. Jesus wouldn't use words like that. Jesus didn't do that. Now, you maybe if you're a teacher, you would do that with the kids that are in your class or whatever, whether they know the Lord or not. But as adults, Jesus didn't do that with them. And I think the problem with some Christians, where I used to be, quite frankly, I think the problem is sometimes we expect unbelievers to act like believers. We expect them to be submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit when the reality is they don't even have the Holy Spirit. How are they going to follow the voice of the Lord if they have no access to the voice of the Lord? And yet we expect them to do. And then what we conclude is this. I got it. I'll be the voice of the Lord in their life. And we sign up and we take on the responsibility of the Holy Spirit in their life. And we point out what they're doing word, and that's a ba- or wrong, that's a bad word, that, that's too revealing, and all these things. And pretty soon, nobody wants to be around you. I remember when I was in college, there was a, a friend of ours, she was a few years older, and she was celebrating her graduation. She finished up her time there in college. And so she invited a bunch of us as her friends to go down to her place down in South Jersey uh, for this picnic. And I go down to this particular place, and she's a believer. Most of her family, if not all of her family, were not believers. And so I go down to this place where this picnic is going to be, and you know, I get out of the car, and I walk into the backyard, and there is a secular radio station, non-Christian radio station that's playing there for the whole picnic party or whatever. And I say out loud, like these Pharisees grumbling out loud so everybody can hear me, I say, you know, this doesn't sound like Christian music or whatever. <laughs> Now, my friend Paula, such a sweet lady, my friend Paula, she comes up, she, she kind of sees the grumbling, hears the grumbling. She says, Greg, shut up, she says. 
She says, don't say anything and ruin this party. Because she knew this, what was going on with her family and that many of them were turned off by people like me and my annoying behavior or whatever. And I remember at the time, I was like, well, all right, if you want to have a sinner party, go ahead. You know, <laughs> if that's how you want to celebrate your graduation and listen to bad music, you can do that. And pretty soon, nobody wants to be around you anymore because you become this judgmental person. Now, Jesus hangs with these folks, and they're content to hang with him. Jesus doesn't share their lifestyle. That's important for you to understand. Jesus doesn't share their lifestyle. He's not getting drunk with them or doing all sorts of things that they were doing, and he's just one of the guys, and you're, so, you're one of the guys. I can relate with you. Right? He doesn't do that because that would be sin for him to do so, and it would compromise his walk for him to do so. But, hey, everybody can get together and eat a meal together right? It's not a, a holy way and a sinful way to eat a meal together. You can just put the food in your mouth and have pleasant conversation, which is what he does. And so these guys are happy to be there, content to be there, probably surprised to be there with this rabbi. Now, verse 11 reveals to us the response of the Pharisees. And the response of the Pharisees shows us just how unusual this interaction is. Look at verse 11. It says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, it's important for us to know, in that culture, sharing a meal with another person was a huge deal. So it wasn't just like, you know, you sat down, you talked, and you went on your way. It was a big deal to sit down or lay down at a table and to share a meal with another. It was really an opportunity to share life with another person. And in some way, when people shared a meal together, they were declaring that the same food that's going in, into your body and is nourishing your body and strengthening your body is going into my body and nourishing my body and strengthening my body. So in a sense, we're becoming one by sharing this meal together. And so in the minds of this Pharisees, of these Pharisees, Jesus is sharing a meal, becoming one with sinners. And it blows their mind. Why would any holy person, religious person, do such a thing? And so now in their mind, they begin thinking things like this. You know, if he was really a holy rabbi, he, there would be no way that he'd be willing to partake of a meal with tax collectors and with sinners. Essentially, they're saying, you know, what's that about? They, they say to the disciples, what's that about? Which is really their question, why does your teacher do those things? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I'm giving you that information. Matthew doesn't really tell us all of that. It's in the Luke passage that tells us the tone of which they speak. So in Luke chapter 5, it says, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. Alrighty, So they're not asking a question like, Oh, that, that's really neat. I, that's interesting. I notice your rabbi eats with tax collectors and sinners. We don't do that. Explain to me you know, what he's thinking. So it's not one of those to try to understand. But the question is really, you know, what's up with that? What, why is your master doing it wrong? That's really the question that they're answering. And it's incidents like this that point out to us that Jesus made some decisions about the way that he was going to minister and the people that he was going to minister to. Now, Jesus could do ministry or could have done ministry in such a way that the status quo of church, so to speak, would remain comfortable. 
Jesus could have done ministry in a way where he took no chances. He could have done ministry in such a way where he never reached out. He could have done ministry in such a way where he never took some risks of being misunderstood. People assumed he was a sinner because he ate with sinners. And in doing all of that, he could have maintained a nice little spiritual facade of a community and not ruffled any feathers of his day and probably not been crucified. Or Jesus could turn the status quo on his head. He could enter onto the scene and make it clear that he wasn't interested in keeping the so-called religious people comfortable and content. And if you read the scriptures, you know he chose the latter. And so once again, seeing a teachable moment, moment, Jesus takes advantage of that. And he engages the religious leaders that are grumbling. I don't know if he could hear them grumbling or if this is spiritual insight uh, into what is going on. But Jesus is aware of the fact that they're grumbling, that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so verse 12 says, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those who are sick. And then he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now again, their question had been, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The answer is because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus loves sinners. So much so that Paul would point out in the book of Romans that he would demonstrate his love for those sinners, that he would die for them, even while they were sinners. So the real question that the Pharisees and religious leaders should have been asking is not why does he eat with sinners, but why don't we eat with sinners? And again, I'm not talking about going to parties, getting drunk, and getting involved in all sorts of things and doing it because you're a friend of sinners. I'm not talking about that. I think, again, it's very important in all of our relationships, we ask this question, who is influencing whom? But with that being said, we go back to that question, how come the Pharisees weren't friends of sinners as well? And I believe we can answer that. The reason why they are not friends of sinners is because they saw themselves as better than those sinners. They saw themselves as too holy for their sinners. They, they probably assumed that some of these sinners' filth is going to rub off on them if they spend time with them, and so they didn't. And instead, we know that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, snubbed these sinners. But the problem is this. If you snub them, how are you ever going to reach them? The problem is if the religious leaders say that they're too far gone, well, then how are you ever going to reach them for the kingdom of God so that they might come to know Christ themselves or, in their case, come to know God themselves? You know, you have to wonder, maybe the religious leaders didn't really want to reach them. Maybe they were content with the status quo of how things were operating. And they didn't want to get into some messy situations. You know, I think a good comparison of the way these religious leaders were acting, they were acting as a doctor that refuses to see sick patients lest those sick patients infect them with their ailments. But the problem is that's what a doctor is for. You're supposed to go to the doctor when you're sick. And these doctors refused to see sick people because they didn't want it to rub off on them. That's how they treated these sinners when they should have been interacting with them so they could introduce them to the place of faith. Now, we don't have it in this account, but again and again in the Gospels, 
we hear things like this, the religious leaders saying things like this, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what sort of man or what sort of woman this is. Whenever Jesus ministered to the sinners of society, that's the grumbling that kind of went on behind the scenes by the religious leaders. And that sort of statement, those sorts of statements, they reveal to us the speaker's understanding of sin and righteousness. It's a statement which says there are sinners and there are righteous people. And of course, the Pharisees considered themselves the righteous people. And so here's Jesus. He hears this grumbling about who he's eating with. And he says in verse 12, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it is those that are sick. The Pharisees were absolutely certain that they were healthy spiritually. And so therefore, the Pharisees never looked for a physician. I don't go to the doctor as often as I should, even when I'm sick, for a couple of reasons. One, I got to put like $135 out every time I go. So even when I'm sick, I'm like, I can make it. I'll last. And honey, if I die, then bring me, you know, that kind of thing or whatever. But I I try to really push off as long as possible to go to the doctors. The fun thing is my doctor, the girl that works in the front of the, the office there, will call me out of the blue. Hey, Greg, how you been? Fine. Who am I talking to? I'm Sally from the doctor's office. We noticed you haven't been in in a while. I said, well, I'm not sick or whatever. Well, you should come in for a well visit. Is it a free well visit? You know, and they're like, well, no. Well, then I ain't coming in. All right, I'll come when I'm sick. You see, if I'm not sick, I'm not going to the doctor. And that's how the Pharisees approached their spirituality. They saw themselves as fine. I remember we went down to New Orleans right after uh, Hurricane Katrina. So this was about two and a half months after the hurricane, and we didn't know what to expect. We flew into the airport. Uh, we drove on a highway, main highway, and we get to the place, a church that we were staying at, and we were going to sleep on the floor of that church. And so as we're driving, you know, we're looking out the window, and you see, you see like a warehouse where the, the tin roof was kind of rolled back a little, and you're like, oh, my gosh, look at the devastation or whatever. We had no idea the real devastation. This was just some places that had a little bit of wind damage or whatever. And so we get to this place, and we're sleeping there. We're going to sleep there in the uh, church. And so we have some time that evening. We decide we're going to go to the neighborhood around, and we're going to introduce ourselves to people. You know, is how you doing? Are you okay? You know, can we pray for you or whatever? And again, these people, they just had a windstorm where we were. And we don't know that. And so we go to this one guy, and his shutter was a little, like, crooked. You know, so he's out there fixing his shutter, and we're like, how you doing, brother? Are you okay? You've been through a lot. He's like, what? Like, my shutter is a little off or whatever. And so we, would you like a snack bar? We offered him a snack bar, the poor guy. And he's like, look, I'm good. He said, you really need to go down to the city. Now, we get all self-righteous, and we're like, look at this guy. He doesn't know his need. He didn't have a need, the poor guy, physically. He had a spiritual need. And then when we got down to New Orleans and the Ninth Ward, then we really saw the devastation physically. But I bring the story up because so often, spiritually, we think we just have a shutter off. People think they just have a shutter that's a little bit crooked or whatever. And so they don't need our help. And so they're not interested in our help when we come to bring the gospel or whatever it may be. The Pharisees were absolutely certain that they were healthy and in no need of a physician. And so Jesus makes it very clear to them that there's no need for him to go and eat with them. 
if they don't think they need a doctor, he as the doctor isn't going to come and meet with them. Now, we know that there was a great need on their part, that they were just not aware of their need. In the mind of these religious leaders, they were good to go. They, they would say, they would agree, yeah, we know we're not perfect, but we're not so bad. We're not like those tax collectors and sinners. You should go minister to those people. They're the ones that really need it. Now, we know the tax collectors and sinners, they were indeed in great need. But so too are the Pharisees. And that's an important thing for us to grab from this. I would even say this to you. I would say that the Pharisees are in greater need than the tax collectors and sinners. And the reason why I say that is because the Pharisees are oblivious to the fact that they even have a need. That these so-called religious people were actually in a more dangerous place than the so-called sinners because they had no idea of their need. And oblivious to that need, they would come to the end of their days, they would stand in judgment before a holy God, and they would try to convince that holy God that they were actually a good person. And the reality is, no matter how good they were here on the earth, they could never be good enough. And this is what they would need to come to realize before they would ever be able to experience the healing that the great physician was willing to bring. The tax collectors and the sinners, keenly aware of the fact that they had a need. Nobody needed to convince them. They just needed an invite, and they were more than willing to take it. And so when Jesus extends it to them, they're, willing, they're more than willing to jump at it. The Pharisees and the scribes, unfortunately, are not. Now, an interesting thing happens in verse 13 that takes place in this interaction between Jesus and these Pharisees, and no doubt it caused them to really be bugged by this rabbi guy. Let me read it to you. Verse 13, it says, Go and learn what this means. This is Jesus speaking. He says to them, the, the religious leaders, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I don't think we get that in the English language. And so you need to know that when Jesus said that, that the majority of people, not the religious leaders, everybody else sitting there was, oh, my gosh, did he just say that? You know, like lingo. I worked at Ewing. I used to be able to bring out Ewing lingo or whatever. I don't work at the high school with kids anymore. But somebody would say, no, he didn't, or whatever, something like that. Like, oh, man, no, like one of these things here. Because Jesus has really just spoken a word of offense toward them, and they would have known it right away. Everybody would have known it right away. Let me explain how so. Jesus quotes to these leaders a Bible verse. He says to them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That verse, it comes from the book of Hosea. It comes from chapter 6 of the book of Hosea. If you haven't read the book in a little while, chapter 6 of Hosea is a prophetic book where the Lord speaks through Hosea and rebukes the Jewish people of Hosea's day. And the reason why the Lord speaks in that instance and brings a rebuke to them is because the people of Hosea's day, the Jewish people of Hosea's day, were busy doing all of the ritual sacrifices of Judaism, but their heart was very, very far from God. And so, in, re, in, in a sense, the Lord speaking through Hosea says something like this. He says, you offer me all of your sacrifices. He says, you know what? But so what? You offer me these sacrifices, but your heart are far from me. It's far from me. You might as well not even bother offering me the sacrifices. So, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, 
I've underlined some words here for you. Let me read the whole verse. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, let me read it to you with the words underlined because this is what the Lord is saying he wants. He says, I desire the knowledge of God rather than sacrifice. They're bringing their sacrifices, but they don't know the Lord. And that's what he really wants. And so they're rebuked for it. And in referencing the verse, Jesus now does a very interesting thing. He essentially says to them, you're doing the same thing. But he says to them, it starts off, notice it says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, the reason why everybody in the room would have been like, oh, my gosh, did he just say that? Is because of this. It was a technique of the religious leaders of that day, if somebody came to them and asked a question, rather than directly answering the question, they would point them into the direction of the answer. And so they would say, that the question would come to them, and they would say, you need to read Isaiah chapter 20, from verse like 5 down to verse 15. Go and read Isaiah 20, verses 5 to 15, and understand what that means. And then the person would go back to their home, they would read their Bible, they'd read those passages, think about it, and hopefully it would be enough to come to an understanding and answer their own question. It's a very effective teaching technique. You see, if if somebody comes to you and they ask you a question, you can just throw out an answer to them, they'll put it on the test, and then they'll drive down the road and they'll completely forget the question and the answer. But if you say to the person, that's a great question, open your book here, turn to page 500, Look there. You'll notice some things about it. Read that. See if you can come up with the answer yourself. If you can, great. If you can't come back, well, I'll give you some more clues. Then a person goes. They do some digging. They find out the answer. That person has really learned the material, right? It's a teaching technique. Now, here's the problem, though. These rabbis, using a very good technique, became a little jerky in this whole process. They became a little arrogant. They become a little proud. And so now I come to you with a question, obviously admitting I don't know the answer. I don't need an attitude from you, Rabbi. I don't need you to kind of, you don't know the answer to that one? You need to read Isaiah 20. Go read Isaiah 20 and then stop bothering me with these dumb questions. That's sort of the attitude that developed amongst these rabbis. And so here's Jesus who says to these rabbis, he says to them, I desire, Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go home and chew on that a little bit and learn the meaning of those words. And they're probably like, you obnoxious, no good, carpenter, fake rabbi person. Can you see how offended they would be in that whole process there? And so Jesus sends them on their way that they may learn the meaning of this. You see, the problem is these religious leaders knew, no doubt, they knew the Bible verse people probably came to them and they gave that Bible verse out. They knew the words, but they didn't know the meaning of the words because they saw themselves as righteous and they saw other people as sinners. And the righteousness that they possessed was actually a self-righteousness. And I'll tell you this, I'll say this to you, it's almost hard to believe but I think it's the reality of the scripture, Jesus has nothing to offer the self-righteous person. There's nothing that Jesus can do for the self-righteous person. And so Jesus says there in verse 13, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus loves the righteous person, but what Jesus has to offer 
to the righteous person is no good to the self-righteous person because it'll never be received by that person. Do you remember back when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount? It started in Matthew chapter 5. Here we are in Matthew 9, three years later it feels like. And we're looking at Matthew 9. The Sermon on the Mount, we have the section that kind of begins that sermon called the Beatitudes. And in verse 3 of that chapter, it says, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Self-righteousness that we're speaking of today is the opposite of being poor in spirit. A person that is poor in spirit is broken over their sin. A self-righteous person isn't broken over their sin. To be, in poor, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your spiritual need. A self-righteous person doesn't have a spiritual need. They have a righteousness that's all their own. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge, as Paul says in Romans 7, that in me, in you, no good thing dwells. A person that's poor in spirit can acknowledge that. A self-righteous person can't acknowledge that. And so self-righteousness is the complete opposite of being poor in spirit. And until a self-righteous person is broken, there is nothing that Jesus can do for them. The reality is this. There may be self-righteous people, but there are no righteous people outside of Christ. All of us are sinners. From the most upstanding person of society to the lowest dreg of society, we're all sinners. There's not a category of righteous people and sinful people, but all of us before a holy God are in great need. And Jesus came specifically with the mission of meeting that need. And so the question is whether or not a person is willing to reach out their hand, declare, I know my need, and take what Jesus has to offer. In our story, the tax collectors and the sinners were more than willing to do so. They'd been convinced. And so they take what Jesus is offering them. But sadly, these religious leaders are having a hard time doing so. They just can't bring themselves to acknowledge their need and accepting what Jesus has to offer. And so I hope it, it didn't turn out this way for them, but at least in our story, what Jesus has to offer them is no benefit to them because they won't take it from him. And so this morning, let me just ask this of you. What about you? Where are you at? Are you convinced of your need for a Savior? Or, like these self-righteous people, are you stuck in comparing yourselves with others and coming to the conclusion, you know, I'm not that bad. I mean, I've seen some bad people, and I'm not that bad, so I guess I'm okay. The problem is this. Don't compare yourself with others because others are not going to stand at the judgment seat with you when you die. You will stand there by yourself. Each one of us will stand there by ourselves. So don't compare yourself to others because they're not going to be there. There's only going to be one other person with you there, and that is Christ himself. Christ will be your judge in that moment. And yet, it's fascinating, and it's, it's good news, actually. At the same time, he'll be your judge, but at the same time, he will also offer himself, and he has offered himself as your advocate. Jesus knows that you have fallen short. And he knows because you have fallen short that the penalty for such is hell. Separation from God for all eternity. He knows you have fallen short and so he extends to you his great love and his great mercy. Your responsibility is to acknowledge your need 
and receive his free gift. If you've never done that, do that this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us, we come to this place where we begin to compromise our convictions. We begin to get involved in some things we shouldn't. We end up going down some path, and we get further and further and further away from you, and our sin is exposed by you. And we stand there, if you will, in our nakedness, knowing our need. And Lord, by your grace, you enter in. Lord, some of us in our pride, however, we're never going to admit that we have a need. We're okay. We'll work harder. We'll do a little better. Sure, we're not perfect. And so, Lord, I pray right now, this, this morning, Lord, in your mercy, in your kindness, by your grace, Lord, that you would open up the heart of each person in this room to their need for a Savior. Father, for those of us that have been walking with you perhaps for a period of time, the tendency is, I know, I've seen it in my life, is for me to begin to think that I'm all right. I'll take it from here. I'll be righteous on my own. And, and then, Lord, I begin to look at others. I compare myself with them. I judge them. I think of myself as better than them. And, Lord, that begins to come out in my actions and my behavior and my talk. And, Lord... It's not pleasing to you. It's not the example that you've established and set. And so, Father, I just want to pray like Paul. Lord, again, in your mercy and kindness, Lord, and your grace, that you would reveal to those of us that perhaps have uh, fallen into that pattern just how great our need is. Lord, I think of Paul progressively. It seems getting worse and worse and finally concluding that he was the chief of sinners not because he got involved in more sin, but because he got closer to you and all of his sin was revealed. Lord, that, that's a painful place to be as a Christian. It hurts. The conviction comes on us. It hurts. And yet it is such a good place for us to be. Lord, it allows all of that fleshliness, if that's a word, Lord, to, to be rooted out of our, of our heart so that you can just sort of fill every crevice. Lord, make us more like Matthew. Lord, give us a heart for our friends that are lost, that we might point them to Christ. I believe that's a prayer according to your will. Continue to minister, Lord. Speak to our hearts even as we close out our time together, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.